As Jesus starts our parable with a landlord. And the first thing to notice about our text is that the landlord is the subject of the parable. He's the centerpiece. The landlord represents God. He owns a field that is ready for harvest, and he's seeking laborers for the field. And what does this landlord do? Well, we're told in verse 1, the landlord goes out. This landlord goes out. He goes out at the first of the day. He goes out the third hour of the day, the sixth hour of the day, the ninth hour of the day, the eleventh hour of the day. This is what our God does. He is a pursuing God. He pursues, pursues, pursues. He goes out, goes out, goes out. Jesus wants his hearers to know that God, uh, God has great love for humanity. And he displays that love in his pursuit of us. He then offers. He offers what? Well, in verse 2, a generous day's wage. A denarius was a generous day's wage. Now, what is the wage for a day laborer? For us, the average hourly pay for a day laborer is about $16.50 an hour. So for 12 hours, that is about $200 a day. But our landlord is generous. So he gives overtime for the four, four of those hours, which is time and a half. That's another $33. Now let's add that up. Let's ramp that pay up to $20 an hour since he's generous. Now we're sitting at $280 for a day's wage. And since he's quite generous, he adds another $20 because the situation is also urgent. How do you know? Well, partly in his seeking out laborers, we know that there is a harvest to get from the vineyard. And partly because he's generous. So our modern day denarius would be an envelope of cash of about $300. Our generous landlord has a field ready for harvest, and he needs laborers. Now, those first-hour laborers are eager beavers. They are up at the site early, 6 a.m. early, before the sun early. They are ready for work, needing work. They're desperate for money. And our landlord is there at 545, and he notices the crew wearily dragging themselves in, ready for work. And they agree on a price, a day's wage. And work begins promptly at 6. Now at 9, the landlord sees that more help is needed. So we're told he goes out. He finds others standing idle. They aren't working. They are ready to work, and so he hires them. Then at lunchtime, Things are still looking quite bleak for this vineyard to be harvested. Maybe the weather that's on the way, maybe the fruit is ripe and ready to be picked, and another day will make it less appealing to be sold at the market. Either way, the landlord goes out, and there are more laborers brought in. Just as the two shifts are finishing up lunch, at 3 o'clock in the heat of the day, the work has slowed. The laborers are down a bit. So our landlord goes out again and finds some more standing idly by, and he invites them in with the allure of some late pay late in the day. Now, we're also told that with the third, sixth, ninth hour workers, that they will get a fair wage. 
what is the fair wage? What would be fair? If we do our math, that means the third hour worker gets $225, the sixth hour worker gets $150, the, the ninth hour worker gets $75, and at five, right before quitting time, the landlord needs a late push. So we're told in verses six and seven, he goes out again, and lo and behold, even at the 11th hour, he finds more laborers. Why are you still here? And no one hired us. Well, the landlord says, go. You too are invited into the vineyard. These grapes won't pick themselves. I need this harvest. I want this field harvested today. Come, come in. And so evening rolls around, and it's quitting time. And the tired men and women roll off the vineyard. And he tells the foreman, call all the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with those who started working at the latest. And ending with those who started working the earliest. So the foreman passes out envelopes of cash. The first 11th hour employee takes his envelope, starts to walk away. He does that thing, right, that we all do. What's in here? He opens it up and he sees three crisp $100 bills. He can't believe his luck. He goes back. Did you mean to give me $300? And the foreman quickly shoes him along. Yes, now go. Have you ever been shocked and surprised by an extravagant gift? My friend Chris, he's in our pastor's group. He's the RUF minister at Wake Forest. A few months ago, he was sitting at lunch with a friend. And the friend looks at him. He says, hey, I have a check in this envelope for you. Open it when we're done with lunch. So he goes back to the car and he does that thing. And he opens it up and it's a check for $30,000. Now the instruction that he gave him as he gave him the envelope was, this is for you to buy a car, but if you don't want to buy a car, that's fine. Use the money however you want to use it. $30,000, that's an extravagant gift. Have you ever been surprised and shocked by such a gift? Now, all of this sets the tension of the parable. This is the punchline in Jesus' story. If the first got paid this and went, if, if he just laid out the money for all those who worked the earliest and said, take your envelope and go home, then there's no tension to this story. Now, this is also why good preachers don't give you everything up front, even though you want it. They give it to you, and they want to create tension. So you keep listening. You might want that outline, but good preachers don't always give it to you. Just remember that. Now imagine these early workers witnessing this. Oh, man. Dude, we struck gold today with this guy. This job is really going to pay out. There's one first-hour worker thinking about the debts he's going to pay off. There's, there's another thinking about some delicious food and wine that he's going to buy on the way home. Another is thinking about, you know, whatever the ancient world big-screen TV is. And then those first-hour workers get their envelopes. It's just $300. 
The same shock that the 11th hour worker has at the extravagance of the landlord's gift is met with the same shock but in disappointment at what they've received. Have you ever been disappointed by a gift? And I couldn't help but think about Clark W. Griswold anticipating that Christmas bonus and the pool he's going to make for his family, the promise that it holds out to him of life. And then he gets the envelope and he opens it up and what's inside? The jelly of the month club. And the shock, the disappointment, the shame from his family. That's all you got? His dad ribs him. His wife and kids patronize him with sad condolences. As each of these earlier workers open their envelopes, you can hear the rumble. They all start talking amongst themselves. What is this? I was here at the crack of dawn. I worked in all that heat. I have blisters on my calluses. For what a measly $300. Now remember, that $300 was a generous day's wage agreed upon by the workers and the owner. One gets up the nerve. Why did those who only worked an hour get the same amount as the rest of us that worked all day and most of the day in this heat. And the landlord steps in for the foreman. Friend, didn't we agree? Didn't we agree to a generous wage for the day? Take it. It's $300. It's yours. That's good pay for a good day's work. Take it and go. But the the questions from the landlord don't stop, right? Can't I do with my money what I want to do with it? Are are you mad? Generous. And then Jesus ends the scene with the words, kind of interpreting this parable. The last will be first and the first will be last. How does this parable sit with you? If you're the first hour worker, the third hour worker, and you're holding that envelope, and you're opening it up, and you're expecting $3,000 based on what the 11th hour worker got, or $2,000, or $1,000, or even $600, and you're holding $300. Just like the people who only worked one hour. You worked 12, 9, 6, 3. What are you thinking? Maybe this is the first thing. The first hour workers thought they would receive 11 times what the 11th hour worker received. And what was their mistake? I mean, I think their mistake was thinking comparatively at all. You see, the disciples were often stuck in this rut. What were some of the comparative questions that they asked Jesus? Who who will sit at your right hand? Who's the greatest? Like, Like, really, Jesus, like when you look around... Who of us is the greatest? Which one of us will be the greatest? Tell us. Peter frequently would give John the side eye. Imagine Peter reading John's gospel 
You're the one that Jesus loved. Really, John? That seems a little bit self-referential, don't you think? I mean, right after this parable, the mother of James and John asked Jesus which of her sons will sit at Jesus' left and right hand. Now, those are the seats of honor, of course. Who will get more? And right before this parable, Peter asked Jesus if the rich man who obeys the law can't get into heaven. What about us? I mean, we left father, mother, sister, brother for you. We left our fishing business for you. What will we get? And before you and I are quick to rush to judgment, I want you to revisit moments of great disappointment. Did you ever look at God like Clark W. Griswold looks up into the heavens? Right, there's that scene. He looks up into the heavens right after he gets his jelly of the month bonus. Do you look at God and think, This is it? Jelly of the month? Do you ever find yourself living in lockstep with the Joneses, wondering when your ship will come in, and then in frustration, turn with the side eye from them to God? Like, what gives God? Jesus knows the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, give the side eye to the Gentiles and the sinners. They, after all, are the early hour workers. We've been here the whole time kind of workers. And, And Jesus, you want to spend time? You want to give them a seat around your table? You want to place them in the seats of honor instead of us? And the the disciples are the the later hour workers, maybe, who are busy shooing away other latecomers, the sick, the old, the children, from the busy Jesus. He is Messiah, after all. He has things to do. Their side-eye is reserved for all the inefficient of the kingdom. And we read these accounts and have our side-eyes reserved for who? All of them. We think we're better. We think this isn't us. But it is. And if we're honest, we read this parable and and we don't like it very much. We we don't like it because we would have shown up early for the work in Jesus' kingdom. So why aren't we reaping the rewards of our diligence? This is a common theme in our spiritual lives. You you can see it in your heart when others are given blessings from God and you find that you can't be happy for them. Why is it so hard for us to be happy with God blessing someone else? Because what we initially think is, why can't I get that God? I've been serving you. I haven't screwed up. I'm trying my best. You can see it in your heart when you encounter suffering and hardship and you find that you are envious of the perceived lack of the same in others. What what did I do to deserve this, God? That person is less faithful than me. They, They never seem to have anything go wrong. They get to go there and there and everywhere. And it's so spiritually toxic for us. It makes us envious, callous, ungrateful, bitter, resentful. Pastors, frankly, are really bad about this. 
It bothers me when a new church starts and explodes in a year. And I just seem to be plodding along in the quitsand here, God. Jesus is lovingly teaching us in this story that God doesn't grade on some spiritual curve where we are all ranked in comparison with one another. God deals with us based on what? Promise. On promises that he has made and his fulfillment of those promises. That's what the landlord does, doesn't he? God is faithful to his covenant, as the scriptures tell us again and again. God is is not being unfair to us. He is being faithful to us. He will do for you exactly what he promised to do for you. We are called to repentance here of accusing God of unfairness because we don't like the way he's running our lives compared with the lives of others. What, What we need to remember to do is to remember God's promises and his faithfulness. And not worry so much about calculating what God has done in comparison to someone else. We need to remember that grace shows up. Any work in the kingdom of God is grace. Grace is the algorithm of the kingdom. Grace shows up here in the form of crisp $300 bills to all those who stood idly until the 11th hour and then decided to put on work gloves and chip in. And we want to say they are earning off our hard-earned labor. We already prepped the field. We did all the hard stuff. We endured the heat. We sweated. They barely had time to sweat. I mean, look at my hands. Look at my clothes. Look at my face. What gives? Grace does. Grace gives the undeserving more than they deserve does seem unfair, and that's the scandal of it. Why is the Lord generous with those that seem undeserving? And why do we always seem to want to met out the scales with what we've earned? This is water for us, by the way. Rights, earning, just wages, just work. It's our water. It's really humanity's water. There's a rabbinic parable that shows up in the Jerusalem Talmud around the time of Jesus. It goes like this. When Rabbi Banbar Chija was asleep, Rabbi Sarah went up to him and spake. A king hired many laborers, one of whom so distinguished himself by industry and skill that the king took him by the hand and walked, him up, and down with, uh, walked up and down with him. In the evening, the laborers came and the skillful one among them to receive their pay. The king gave them all the same pay, wherefore those who had worked the whole day murmured and said, We have worked the whole day, and this man only two hours, and yet he has received his whole pay. And the king answered, This man has wrought more in two hours than you did the whole day. Even so hath Rabbi Ban Barshija in 28 years wrought more in the law than many studious scholars in 100 years. Like That's how we want the parable to read. The reason they got paid so well for that one hour is they put in and worked more in one hour than everybody else did in 11. That makes sense to us. Does God save based on uncalculating mercy, completely irrespective of our accomplishments, 
Or does he save based on what we might do with it? This is the question the parable asks and answers. The owner says to the early hour workers, isn't this what we agreed to? You aren't getting less than that. You're getting exactly that. And what's being asked here are theological questions. Is God good? Is God sovereign and fair? And the landlord seems to be saying, must I answer this? Wasn't this our agreement? Are you mad that I'm generous? Literally, are you giving me the evil eye because I'm good? The all-day workers, the first, do in fact begrudge God for his generosity. They don't like how he distributes his gifts and graces. They don't like that he saves others as he saved them when they perceive that those others are much less deserving. If you know anything about the social background of the New Testament, it's impossible to read this and not think of Jewish-Gentile relations in the early church. In fact, the Apostle Paul dedicates some of his most intense teaching in all of his letters to this exact question. Does God not have the right to save whomever he wishes to save and to be generous with whomever he wishes? We looked at this last year in Romans 9 to 11. Here, he makes an irrevocable case for the truth of the sovereignty of God's grace. And he directs his argument to his fellow Jews, the spiritual first of the day. He tells them that God has chosen to show mercy to the Gentiles through their receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that they are no less deserving of God's mercy than the Jews themselves were. Of course, the the Jews couldn't handle this reality. In fact, God even uses the Jews' jealousy of the Gentiles being converted as a means, we're told in Romans 11, to convert them. This parable is a story form of Romans 9, 20. Who are you, O man? man? Who are you to answer back to God? Will what is molded say me like this? Now, Now, we can't restrict this resistance to sovereign generosy to a year old ethnic dispute either. Our own nation's history is full of the exact same thing, and it can take all sorts of manner of guises. It can be racial. White Christians begrudging God's generosity to black Christians or vice versa. It can be fabricating all kinds of biblical interpretations in an attempt to always explain it away. It can be theological. Reformed Christians begrudging God's generosity to Pentecostal Christians and attempting to simply co-sign them as heretics and ignore God's generosity of people different than ourselves. One of the great ironic travesties of people coming to understand the fullness of God's grace is that it's often accompanied with an arrogance towards those we perceive don't understand God's grace as well as we do. Now, there's a personal dynamic to this as well. When we struggle to allow God to be God, we find ourselves wanting to be God. It's important to remember this parable. God is in control. We are not, and we can rest in that. We we should know God well enough to know that he can be trusted. Living with God and working for God brings the inevitable reminder that we are not God, and we are not in control, and that is a good thing. It, It 
Let's allow God to be God. Let's free ourselves to watch him distribute all his resources in whatever way he chooses, believing that he knows better than we. So, friends, receive this grace. Receive this grace that is indiscriminate. Receive this as a gift. Receive this grace that is given. It, it doesn't make sense. It's wild. It's unruly. This is what Dale Bruner says. The, the Lord who lifts the last, the seemingly less effective, fruitful little people and spiritual newcomers into places of honor, last become first in this story, not because they've done enough good works, but because they have a good Lord. A Lord who invites them into the field at all even at the latest possible hour, and then who then rewards them as though they'd worked a full day's work. This is a super abundant gift, as though they had done enough work. This comes close to Paul's gospel of a reckoned or imputed righteousness. God, as represented in this parable, would make a terrible businessman. It wouldn't be long before he went bankrupt with these sorts of pay scales. And yet, isn't it remarkable news that God is as uncalculating in his grace as this landowner is with his resources? The Lord who promised those hired late only that he would be fair turns out to be extravagant. The lesson of the parable for us is to see and believe in the God who is as freewheeling and open-handed with his forgiving grace as this landowner was with the latecomer workers. This parable crushes, crushes, you get what you deserve. That mindset, that worldview, and it invites us into a way, a new way of thinking, into the arithmetic of God's kingdom, where you don't get what you deserve, and you don't work for what you earn. It's all free. Now, you Americans need to sit with that. Because Americans of all people are the most that hate that. Free stuff. It's all free. It's all gracious. None of it is produced by us. This is why the gospel is so radical and powerful in its message. It's what I want you to hear this morning. The gospel says that God does not treat you based on how hard you work, on how good you are, on how much you earn, or how long you've been doing any of these things. And it's ridiculously liberating for you. The way God treats us is based entirely on his own gracious character, on the work of Jesus, his son, imputed to us by faith. Martin Luther said that the heart of this parable is that God does not want to deal with us according to our work, according to our deserving, but according to grace. It's a living illustration of Heidelberg, question 60. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus, that is, Although my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone to all sorts of evil, yet God, without any of grace, grants and imputes to me satisfaction 
this righteousness, this holiness of Jesus as if I've never committed any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. I want you to hear that if you are one of the last of this story, if you've spent your life wastefully, if you've been as idle as these workers were, ignoring God, not doing anything of value, running away from him, the last are the ones that God longs to privilege. It is who he is. It's hard for us not to get that, but you can enter into this kingdom at any time, no matter what has happened in your life to this point, and rest in his generosity. Last become first in this story, not because they have done enough good works, but because we have a good Lord. A Lord who invites us into the field at all, even at the latest possible hour, and then rewards us as if we had all done a day's work. And if you're one of the first of this story, there's a message for you too. Grace makes last first, and judgment makes first last. You see, the parable is a parable of grace and judgment. The early morning workers, we are told by Jesus here, were the first that become last. They are bloated by their hubris. Not by a failure to do good, by the way. Judgment is reserved here for those who think they've been wronged by God, that somehow they've been treated unfairly. But to be in the field at all, to be called to work at all, is sheer gift. So, so don't look down on or disregard or despise those that we don't think do as much or give as much or serve as much or are as gifted or competent or committed. When we remember the love God has shown to us, when we didn't deserve it, we celebrate the love God gives to others as well. And the only cure for the probing question of just deserts and fairness and pride is grace. This parable ends on that day when evening came. In Greek, it's happy hour. Because that's when the landlord gives to all, all of us undeserving alike. That's when the Lord gives and gives, that the Lord doesn't want to deal with us according to our work or our deserving, but according to grace. The parable is about a generous landlord, a prodigal God, wastefully giving three crisp $100 bills to us all. The gift of a full salary and fruitful work. The offer of life from a pursuing God. Happy hour is the heavy, heavy poor. It's the double for a single. It's grace that isn't strained. So receive it. All of it. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us as uh, we come to the table to remember in living color, in tangible means, bread, wine, and juice poured out for us. The heavy pour of your body and your blood. It's happy hour for us. For all of us who get what we don't deserve, it's happy hour. And so help us to come forward today with 
not downtrodden faces, but with faces made afresh by the grace of God. By the gift of three crisp $100 bills for an hour's work. For the generous gift of salary and labor at all. Let us come open-handed, clear eyes, full hearts, and receive your grace. Help us, God, this morning, we pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our King, our generous brother, our giving Father. Amen.